can get this to work. There we go. Well, morning. I'm John Melema. I, um, I was lucky enough to be asked by Pastor Steve to preach this morning. And I was talking to the first service and said, it certainly seems like a better idea months before it happens than it does <laughs> as you get closer and closer. Uh, but then, again, he uh, asked me to preach in Revelation, which I was hoping that it would be more of a softball, like sin is bad or something like that. But uh, uh, he was gracious enough to to uh, allow me to preach on Revelation 2. So in uh, whenever you're preaching, thankfully you don't have to come up with new material because God's got it all there for you. So if things go well, praise God. But if uh, if you don't get anything out of the service, it's either me or you, but it's not God. So, oh, the water... A little background on Ephesus before we start. Uh, Ephesus is a city located in Asia Minor, which is present-day Turkey. Uh, it was one of the seven uh, churches that were mentioned in Revelation 2, with a letter specifically from Jesus Christ. But it was a large uh, cosmopolitan city, a population of about 250,000 people. It was technically part of the Roman Empire, but they allowed it to be self-governed, which it was a very proud city with uh, a lot of people that were honored to be called Ephesians, but it was second only to Rome in culture and in commerce. Uh, we have some slides here. The first one is a picture of the ruins of the Celsus Library. This was uh, one of the many buildings in the uh, Ephesus that were just amazing architecturally, but also just shows you how advanced they were at that time. It was the third largest library in the Roman Empire. Uh, the city itself had complicated infrastructure. They actually had a sewage system. Uh, they had public baths, public toilets. They also had aqueducts to bring fresh water in. Uh, they had a large theater that had a capacity, which had the next slide, capacity of 25,000 people. Uh, and they actually used this to help calculate how many pe people they think lived in Ephesus because typically the theater would hold about 10% of the population in any given Roman city. So that's part of how they came up with 250,000 people. But it was a polytheistic society. They worshipped the gods of the Romans and the Greeks. Uh, they had two temples specifically dedicated to Roman emperors. The Roman emperor, the, the honor of having a temple to the Roman emperor had to be granted by the, the emperor, so that was a matter of pride for them as well. It was a very progressive city. They, they actually had egalitarian rights, equal rights between women and men, which was pretty unheard of at that time. It was a center of commerce for the area. They had four large uh, um, uh, roads or major trade routes that came through Ephesus. And it was a major port city. Their river had a deep port that connected to the Mediterranean. And so it was one of the wealthiest cities because of the, all of these facts. They even lit some of their streets at night with oil lamps, if you can imagine that. It was well known for its hedonism, though, the polytheism, the worshiping of fertility goddesses, temple prostitutes, indulgent lifestyles. It was home to one of the seven wonders of the world, which was our next slide here. This is the Temple of Artemis, or at least an artist's depiction of that. Uh, the temple no longer exists today, but it was four times the size of the Greek Parthenon. It was 425 feet long, 220 feet wide, and 60 feet high, with great folding doors and all these pillars. You see there was 127 marble pillars, and some of them were covered in gold. The worship of Artemis was... Uh, the peak of that society, but was also religious immorality at its worst. In the midst of this opulent, culturally enlightened, and hedonistic culture, Paul arrived in 52 AD and began preaching initially in the synagogues. 
And then it spread into the public spaces. And he stayed there working with the church in Ephesus for two to three years. And this church, perhaps more than any others, was home to kind of the all-stars of pastors in the early church. You had Priscilla and Aquila. You had Paul. You had the Apostle John that came through and pastored the church. You had Timothy and also Tychius. Timothy was there in AD 64 to help remind the church of uh, the truths and, and prevent false teachings being spread. And Timothy was written by Paul to Timothy to admonish him, admonish him from uh, and how to fight against the heat, or, I'm sorry, the heresies that were attacking the church. John was living in Ephesus 30 years after Timothy, the letter to Timothy, and was preaching in uh, preaching in God's name against the proclamation of the emperor Domitian, who then put him into uh, exile on the island of Patmos, and that's uh, in the Mediterranean, about 60 miles from Ephesus, and that was where G- John had his revelation from Christ, and that's what we're reading here. Revelation 2, 1 through 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them to be false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaites, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So looking at this passage, I was kind of separating the good, the bad, and the deadly. And the good, the first easy part of the passage, is where he's exhorting the Ephesians. The letter was addressed to Ephesus to the angel of the church, and the angel would mean messenger, which could be a spiritual messenger like the angels we think of with uh, uh, the wings and the, and the blazing light, but it also could mean the pastor, elders of the church. And it was addressed from Jesus, and he calls him one like a son of man, which is a term that Jesus used to describe himself in the past earlier in the New Testament. So we have this image of Jesus walking and ministering among his uh, churches there in Asia Minor. His description of how he holds the church leaders in, their, in his hand implies divine protection and guidance to the leadership of the church. You see his reassuring the believers that he knows their deeds, their hard work, their perseverance. And it's certainly reassuring to know your Savior and Lord recognizes the effort that you're putting in and that these things are valuable if they're done in the name of the Lord. He goes on to praise the Ephesians that they're adhering to strict orthodoxy and not allowing evil or heresy into the church. The church was testing the message of people who claimed to be speaking for God or being sent from God. If the message was not in agreement with the word of God, they were not tolerated. They were kicked out both the message and the messenger. There were many heresies then and there are now that try to creep into the church. In our day, we hear a lot of prosperity gospel preaching. We hear people who espouse the idea that God is not a God of judgment. He would not allow anyone to go to hell, that love wins, and there's no consequences for our actions. Jesus also recognized that they continue to grow strong without growing weary and praises them for hating the practice of the Nicolaitans. This is a group that's not very well known at this time. We don't, there's some speculation about what they really stood for, but one of the theories is that it was started by one of the elders in the church that was leading people astray into immorality and wickedness. 
they think they were assaulting the church with sensual temptations, which would be very in line with what the Temple of Artemis and the Ephesians believed in their polytheistic society. Clement of Alexandria, in talking about the Nicolaitans, said that they abandoned themselves to pleasure like goats, leading a life of self-indulgence. So no matter what they preached, it seemed to be some sort of perversion of God's grace, replacing freedom in Christ with a license to sin. Well, that's the good, the, the admonition. But now he warns the church that they grew cold. They forsake in their first love. So we looking at what is the first love? What does it look like in the beginning? In the Old Testament, Jeremiah describes the relationship of God to his people of Israel. In Jeremiah 2, verse 1 and 2, it says, The word of the Lord came to me. Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem that is what the Lord says. I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me and followed me through the wilderness, through a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. In the New Testament, we can see the events in Ephesus when Paul came to Ephesus. This is recorded in Acts 19 and 20. It talks about him preaching the word in the synagogues, initially having 12 men that believed and were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus with the Holy Spirit coming upon them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. He stayed in Ephesus, living among them, preaching for two to three years. It talks about him having discussions and lectures in the Hall of Tyrannus, which would be a public space. They record extraordinary miracles that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched Paul were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. It talks about demons being cast out. It says, When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear of the name of the Lord. In the name of the Lord, Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. A number who had practiced sorcery burned their valuable scrolls. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Eventually, Paul left the city after a riot that was started by Demetrius, the silversmith. The word of the Lord was so transformative in that culture that in two to three years, the silversmiths were worried about their occupational well-being, that people were no longer buying their household idols, and it was so bad that they started a riot. And it filled that, that theater of 25,000 where it says that they chanted, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians for two hours in unison. The other believers urged Paul to leave for his safety, and that's, that's when he left Ephesus. Uh, but you look at what the results were. The people were filled with the fear of the Lord and honor for Jesus. They didn't just think it, they acted. They radically changed their life in response to the love and grace of Jesus. They were convicted of their evil deeds they confessed them. They recognized the supremacy of Christ in their life, and then they looked at what it was in their life that was putting a wall between them and God. They gave up their occupations in some cases. They sacrificed things that were extremely valuable. Those scrolls that talks about them being worth over a year's wages in some cases, and they burned them. They were willing to sacrifice for their relationship with Christ. Then we can see in Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, 10 years later where Paul writes to them from prison in Rome between... 60 and 62 A.D. In Ephesians 1, 15 and 16, he says, Ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped thank- giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. If you go farther into Ephesians, in Ephesians 2, some very well-known verses. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air the spirit who is now at work at those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the natures and cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. 
Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you've been saved. And God raises, raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. When the believers in Ephesus heard these great truths, they were reminded again of God's grace and of their need for for repentance and a changed life, and love continued to produce action. Have we even known what our first love should be? Growing up in this country, at least in the past, it's been almost assumed that this is a Christian country, although that's been changing quite a bit. But there's some danger in just assuming, in just living out, trying to follow the rules and not being filled with the love. It's easy to fall into the trap of works righteousness, starting to get filled with pride and thinking about how good you're doing and following the rules that God set for you and comparing yourself to others. C.S. Lewis says, Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. We like to compare our self-righteousness and our acts, whether we like to admit it or not, between but making, making us more worthy of God than others. And in reality, it's more like two blades of grass arguing about which one is closer to the sun. God gives us a powerful illustration in the word in multiple instances of the difference between the penitent believer and the proud, religious, self-righteous person. If you look in Luke, he gave the example of a Pharisee that was standing by himself and praying. He said, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance and would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Earlier in Luke, when Jesus was anointed by a sinful woman at Simon the Pharisee's home, he told him a parable. He said, two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One of them owed 500 denarii, and the other owed 50. Neither of them had money to pay back, so the moneylender forgave the debts. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned to the woman and he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house and you did not give any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. So who are we? Do we actually know how much we've been forgiven? Are we that grateful sinner that's desperately in love with the Savior that sacrificed everything for us? Or are we this self-righteous Pharisee focused on the idol of following rules and proving yourself worthy, the pride of self without compassion for others, or any memory of the desperate need that you yourself have of a Savior? Have we grown cold? Has the wonder of God's grace and mercy become a statement of unfeeling orthodoxy, cold and mechanical? In this passage, Jesus is in the midst of the churches and saw what was missing. They had left their first love. The local church is supposed to be the pride of Christ and the body of Christ. But there's the danger of growing cold. 
Christ is more concerned about what we do with him than for him. Labor is not a substitute for love. And to the public, the Ephesians church was successful, but to Christ it, it had fallen. Do we see how far we've fallen? Do we feel that conviction of the Holy Spirit? Sometimes we've become so callous and dull to it that we don't even feel that inkling, but it's there. We need to repent, the passage says. That means to go back and do what we did at the beginning. Do we have that love of Christ burning in our heart? The fall that Christ is talking about isn't some minor defect like stubbing your toe. If you look at the consequences that Christ is warning the church about, he's not talking about not being fulfilled. He's talking about taking away their lampstand, which would be shutting down their church. Are we different than Ephesus? Are we listening? Are there things that we need to confess? There are tremendous spiritual dangers of leaving your first love. What do we actually have in our heart? The true God of your heart is often what your thoughts effortlessly go to when there's nothing else demanding your attention. Is there compassion and love for our church and fellow brothers or sisters or only judgment based on our own cherry-picking or interpretation of the rules that we like and throwing out that which we don't? If we lack compassion, how do we have this heart that Christ has for the lost? And where do we find our meaning? If we're honest, is there something else in our heart that's more centered and more fulfilling than Christ to us? The gospel is Christ alone. It's not Christ and If only I had a different job, more money, a different relationship, a better house, better car. Lord, I'd do anything. If if this, then I will. We're seeing modern Western churches that are in danger of losing their lampstand. C.S. Lewis, I enjoy so many of his quotes, but he says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when an infinite joy is offered to us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. This gives us a window into the struggle of the rule-following believer in Ephesus. They knew the truth and kept the rules, but they forgot Christ's love and mercy. They had the mindset of Jonah. They stood firm for God's law, but they were not holding his grace and mercy. When you look in Jonah, it's a story that's well-known if anybody's been in Sunday school. Jonah didn't want to obey Christ. He didn't want to go to or God. He didn't want to go to Nineveh. It was an evil city. He tried to flee to Tarshish, and when he did, God sent a storm. And to calm the storm, Jonah was thrown in the sea, and we're told that a great fish swallowed him, and he was in the belly of the fish for three days. He repented and was bit up on shore, and then went to Nineveh. He went through Nineveh for three days preaching to repent or God was going to bring destruction on the city. And that's often where we kind of leave off that story when Nineveh repents. But there's a whole quarter of the book still there. In Jonah 3, verse 10 to 4, verse 11, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. And he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city, and there he made himself a shelter and sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. 
Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head and ease his discomfort, and Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a warm a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry I wish it were dead. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant. Though you did not tend it or make it grow, it sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and also many animals? And that's the last verse in Jonah. The problem with Jonah was that he forgot that he was on par with the Ninevites. He was not above them. He was therefore walking around demanding condemnation for them and judgment. He wasn't thankful for the change that God had brought on the people and he didn't see the value of the love of God for all, but rather held himself and by extension, the nation of Israel in high esteem because of their works, following the rules, thinking they deserve something better than the Ninevites. He misunderstood God's grace. Contrast that with Paul, who comes to a city twice the size. He goes into Ephesus. He preaches the word. He lives among them. He disciples them. And he helps bring about God's transformation in joy. You can see this with the Ephesians. You can also see with the Thessalonians. In First Thessalonians 1.3, he says, We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. They had the transformation of an all-consuming love relationship with Christ. The primacy or first love of Christ produced in them good works, but these were not out of pride or self-righteousness, but rather out of faith, love, and hope. Jesus says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him is victorious, or some translations say overcomes. I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So what are we actually overcoming? We have to overcome our addiction to our self-righteousness. Give it all to Christ. Put off our old self, as he says. Take up our cross daily and follow him. If we do this, we will be filled with faith, hope, and love. C.S. Lewis again says, Look for yourself, and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you will find him, and with him everything else thrown in. These letters to the, from Christ to the early church are obviously to them at the time, but they also apply to the church throughout history in our church today. How many churches, when you look through the news and history, have been led astray by the world and the promise of sex, wealth, power, prestige, how many wars have been justified? How many cruel acts were endorsed? How many denominations are losing their saltiness by taking parts of the gospel that make people uncomfortable and not holding to the love of Christ? Is this any different from Ephesus? The hedonism of our country versus the hedonism of Artemis? How many other churches have no love for the sinner but only judgment while forgetting the, the debt that they themselves have been forgiven? As a church, how do we maintain that orthodox teaching and guard against heresy like the Ephesians church did all the way through 95 AD, but at the same time remain full of love in Christ like the Ephesian church did from 52 to at least 64 AD? The wonder of the gospel in my life should be life transforming. God does not love me because of my works. God loved me and made me alive, and because of this in joy, I should desire to be transformed and do good works. I need to allow the Holy Spirit to convict me and transform me. 
I need to have him show me what my scrolls are and what I'm hiding. What am I holding in higher regard than a life with my Savior? Do I want to burn my scrolls out of love for Christ? Brothers and sisters, Christianity is not a boring list of rules to follow, to build ourselves up, proving our worthiness of salvation or a rite of passage that allows us to remain in the club of Sunday mornings or Wednesday nights. Rather, Christianity is a dynamic, all-consuming, all-loving relationship with the creator of the universe. Being in love with God through being filled with the Spirit should be transforming. We need to see the reality of living with God. That will give us strength to confess while producing confidence that I'm completely welcome at God's table as his child. I, uh, I always enjoy T- Timothy Keller, my favorite, I think, but uh, he explains it like this. He says, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the sa- very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Christ Jesus than we ever dared hope. I am so flawed that Jesus had to die for me. Yet I am so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. This should lead to deep humility and deep confidence at the same time. It undermines both swaggering and sniveling. I cannot feel superior to anyone, and yet I have nothing to prove to anyone. I do not have to think more of myself or less of myself. Instead, I have to think of myself less. The problem with our hearts is the same problem from 2,000 years ago and from the problem with Jonah thousands of years before that. The last question question is to us. We may be religious and moral, but our real religion is we live for ourselves. We always preserve for ourselves the right to decide if God's will fits into our tidy view of ourself and how our life should go. We may believe in God's will, but we don't see it as a fire. If we did, we would give ourselves up and live for him and be warmed by the fire and also refined by the fire. Well, what happened to Ephesus? The city was sacked by the Goths in 262 A.D., never regaining its splendor. Massive earthquakes later happened. The harbor filled in with silt. It's now three miles from the ruins of Ephesus to water access in the Mediterranean. It was invaded. It was conquered by the Arab invasions, followed by the Ottoman Empire. And eventually it was abandoned completely in the 15th century. You can go there and tour it and see spectacular ruins of an affluent, highly cultured, egalitarian, progressive society that used to be, but there is no life. No city remains and the lampstand is gone. C.S. Lewis says again, to have faith in Christ means, of course, trying to do all that he says. There would be no sense in saying you trusted a person if you would not take his advice. Thus, if you have have really handed yourself over to him, it must follow that you are trying to obey him, but trying in a new way, a less worried way, not doing these things in order to be saved, but because he has begun to save you already, not hoping to get to heaven as a reward for your actions, but inevitably wanting to act in a certain way because a first faint gleam of heaven is already inside of you. Have you ever had this first love for Christ? If not, you need to repent. You have to believe. You have to be baptized. Have you had it, but now you've grown cold? Again, you need to repent. You need to follow God with faith, love, and hope. Then you will become victorious and overcomer and eat from the tree of life in the paradise of God. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your love, your infinite grace and mercy. Thank you for loving us enough to sacrifice your son who lived a perfect life to pay the penalty that our lives, that my life deserves. 
have mercy on us. Give us the strength to restore you as our first love. May we be fully aware of our desperate debt that has been forgiven. Please show us the hidden scrolls in the back rooms of our lives and the deep corners of our hearts and give us the strength to confess them and bring them out and burn them. Fill us with your spirit. Produce the faith, hope, and love that will spur us onto doing the good works that you have called us to. In Jesus' precious name, amen.